Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily email newsletter or download the handy app to keep current in just a few minutes a day with the latest business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. I'm joined from Nashville, Tennessee by deposed Panamanian strongman Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you this fine autumn day, Jeremy? I'm doing very well. Or can you not experience much weather in that Supermax facility? <laughs> oh, and, and pity you can't join me in Chapel Hill for Thanksgiving this year. Yeah, that, that is the only reason. Maximum security guards are the only things that could keep me away from your Thanksgiving dinner, Kaiser. And that's a great place to actually introduce our topic for today because the Western holiday season is here to be followed shortly afterwards by Chinese New Year and all the feasting it entails. So we're delighted today to be joined by a luminary from the world of Chinese food. Fuchsia Dunlop was the first Westerner to train as a chef at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine in Chengdu in Sichuan province. She's worked as a journalist and chef. She's the author of a tower of highly praised and award-winning books about food and recipes, including Sichuan Cookery, Land of Plenty, Revolutionary Chinese Cookbook, Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper, A Sweet Sour Memoir of Eating in China, Every Grain of Rice, and the just-published Land of Fish and Rice, Recipes from the Culinary Heart of China. Fuchsia joins us today from New York, where Eric Fish, who hosts and produces the excellent Asia Society podcast, is helping us to record. Fuchsia, what a great honor to have you on our show, and welcome to Seneca. Hi, pleasure to be here. I have to tell you first that the guy I share a space with here at the studio in Durham, uh, an American guy named Damian, who lived in China for a number of years, uh, cooks from your books religiously, and he was over the moon when I told him that we were speaking with you today. I'm pretty sure he's right outside with his ear pressed against the door. Uh, he is more excited than I've ever seen him, actually, except for maybe when I gifted him recently with a jar of my wife's homemade pot How wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it is exceptionally good pot thai. Anyway, Fuchsia, let's start with your origin story. How did you get interested in China and in Chinese food? And tell us about how you eventually enrolled at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. Well, I'd been very, very interested in food and cookery since childhood. Um, and But the China thing happened really by accident. So after graduating from university, where I read English literature, I had a job as a sub-editor for a publication all about the Asia-Pacific region. And I found myself reading all this stuff about China, and I got interested. So I went on holiday to China, went backpacking around the country for a month, and was rather captivated. So when I came back to London, I enrolled in night school to to learn Mandarin. And then a year later, I won a British Council scholarship to go and study in Chengdu. And I have to admit that I did choose Sichuan University. 
quite largely because of its culinary reputation. That's a very sensible approach. It is, yeah. <laughs> to, it definitely, China. definitely paid off in my case. And so I spent a year at the university getting gradually distracted from my official course of study and gradually embroiled in the local kitchens. And I sort of spent time in local restaurants asking if I could study in the kitchens and learning from friends and so on. I had been taking a couple of private classes at this famous provincial cooking school, the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. And when I'd finished my course at the university, they invited me to join as a regular student. And I was the first foreign student they'd ever had. So, um, you know, it was that time in China when things that would have been completely impossible bureaucratically only a few years before were suddenly becoming a bit possible. And I'd made friends with the teachers at the school and they knew I was very keen on cooking. And of course, I didn't hesitate. And um, so that day I enrolled, they gave me my shop Chinese cleaver and my chef's whites. And I joined joined in a class of 50 young Sichuanese men and two women and learned the arts of Sichuanese cookery. 50 men and two women? Yeah, I mean, you know, catering, chefing in China is very male-dominated and there were just a couple of women in, in my class. Did you find the atmosphere at all kind of, I guess, what we call in the West sexist? I mean, uh, with such a, a proportion... Uh, how, how was the experience of being a woman in that environment? Well, it's hard to disentangle the experience of being a woman in that environment from being a foreigner in that environment because most of my classmates had never spoken to a foreigner before and um, it took some time for them to stop calling me Lao Wai and actually <laughs> call me by my name. And um, we divided up into brigades of 10 to do the actual cooking after we'd had class and cooking demonstration by the teachers. So I was in a group with nine young men and I did have to sort of struggle to get myself included in dividing up the tasks and so on. But, you know, people were you know generally very friendly and a couple of classmates were particularly kind for me and, you know, lent me notes when I was struggling to keep up and um, so on. This is an experience that the, the American left would describe as intersectionality. <laughs> <laughs> Are you being discriminated against because you're a foreigner or because you're a woman, you mean? <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> right. But I think it was just, you know, it was just a, a weird cultural experience for all of us. You know, I was, although I'd been living in Chengdu for a year, I was suddenly flung in at the deep end and I was in classes which were taught in Sichuan dialect. I was reading specialist cookery texts in Chinese and, um, you know, the whole thing was a just crazy, wonderful experience. Fuchsia, what was a typical day in your life there like? You know, what, what time did you get up in the morning and did you, in fact, spend four hours a day chopping stuff? <laughs> well, I, would, um, I was still living near the university at, in the um, southeast of Chengdu. So I would get up, I guess, about seven or s something, and I would cycle for 40 minutes to the opposite end of Chengdu, stopping on the way to pick up a couple of steamed baozi or some dumplings for breakfast. And then I would get to the cooking school and the first part of the day we would have the theory class and the teacher uh, would explain the dishes that we'd be tackling that day. It was usually two dishes. Um, so describing the cooking method, talking about the selection of ingredients and so on. And then we would all file into the demonstration theatre and the teacher would demonstrate the dishes and we would all watch. And then we had lunch break and we would all sort of... Um, sort of hang around in the courtyard of the cooking school eating from our lunch boxes 
And um, then we went back and we cooked the dishes. And that was the most fun part, of course. One of the wonderful things about it was that it was all from scratch. I mean, we didn't have any machines. There were just, you know, the very simple ingredients. There were jars, great clay vats of pickles in, in one of the storerooms. And we had, you know, gas burners and woks and we each had our cleavers and we just did everything from the basics. It was a really fantastic initiation into the arts, not just of Sichuanese cookery, but of, of Chinese cookery in general. So, Fuchsia, the recipes in your cookbook, beginning with your classic Sichuan cookery, include dishes that you learned at the feet of famous chefs, but also a lot of basics that ordinary people routinely just make at home. Uh, Tell us a bit about your process. How do you identify the people whose recipes you want to learn and then teach? And how do you go about adapting those recipes? And, And how do you decide which dishes to include and which ones to leave out of your books? Well, I suppose I just, when I'm in China, I'm eating very widely, as you can imagine, and, um, you know, getting into kitchens whenever I can. And I suppose, you know, when you're writing a regional cookbook, there are certain dishes that you just have to put in. Like with a Sichuanese cookbook, you could not write it without including mapu dofu or hui guo rou, twice cooked pork. You know, you have the classic canon of dishes. So those dishes, I would just observe as many chefs as possible and home cooks making them and also look at books for some clues. Then, you know, at home in in London, try and work them out until they would taste the way I thought they should do. And then with other recipes, it's partly just, you know, going around and coming across something that is fantastically delicious and then thinking, well, that should go in. It's a very, you know, there are no absolutes in this. It's sort of trying to represent a regional cuisine in its complexity. And of course, you can't possibly put everything in. So the idea is to get a selection of recipes which show off different facets of the cuisine. Maybe, you know, the street food and the Buddhist vegetarian food, the Muslim cooking, the home cooking, the banquet cooking, and, and have things things that show all the different sides. But um, it's very much a sort of work it out as you go along process with me. You know, I start with a list of recipes, but it's constantly evolving. And some things, you know, some things don't really work out or I think that or they get eclipsed by other recipes. And, and also the added thing, of course, that one is writing for a Western audience. And so, you know, you both want to challenge people and give people dishes that they don't necessarily know, but also to offer them things that are doable and that are palatable. So it's sort of where do you draw the line between, for example, having very complicated dishes or hard to find ingredients or, you know, putting things in because they're culturally and regionally important. And to what extent do you just give your Western readers things that they are immediately want to, going to want to eat? Well, I think the popularity and your success attest to having made a lot of very, very wise decisions in, in that. Fuchsia, one of the problems I've found with many Chinese recipes, in the written form at least, is that they can be so vague. You know, you're told to heat the oil to, you know, six-tenths degree hot liuchang, <laughs> uh, or put in a suitable amount of some condiments. Do you use many written Chinese sources? And if you do, do you have any recommendations? Well... No, I don't. I mean, I do use them for reference because it's really interesting to compare different versions. But generally, you know, as you've mentioned, they can be quite vague and sometimes just very inaccurate. So I certainly wouldn't rely on, you know, written recipes. 
But I suppose, yeah, and things like working out seasonings, I think it's more important to tune my palate to know what something should taste like. And that, again, isn't an absolute because there are a lot, you know, everyone will make mapo dofu slightly differently. So it's trying to find a final dish that really tastes authentic and that somehow represents all these different versions in an appropriate way. On the subject of recipes, uh, do you find that the Chinese chefs who you've interacted with and you've met on your travels tend to be guarded and secretive about their art or are they generally willing to share? Yeah, I've been tremendously lucky. I mean, I couldn't do anything that I do without the extremely generous support of people all over China and encouragement. So I know that there's this old, you know, there's this old tradition in China of liu yi shou, you know, keeping back a hand or two. And they always say all the conservative old chefs used to keep back their secrets because they didn't want their apprentices to outdo them. And um, But in my experience um, with chefs who I've got to know and who trust me, you know, I watch them doing their cooking and I ask questions and they answer them. And as far as I know, they're not keeping back um, the most important secrets from me. <laughs> no, I'm now suspicious that you're also <laughs> Liu Yishou. You, you've got something you put in there, no. your secret no, well, some, recipes. Ah. Some of the younger chefs, you know, they pride themselves on their candor and they say, we're not like these old guards, you know. But then, you know, where you get competition between different chefs, then they don't want their rivals to know. But it, somehow it's a bit different because I'm an outsider. So I have some chefs who will show me secret things that they wouldn't tell a Chinese journalist, you know, because I'm doing something different and I'm helping to sort of promote their culture and their food abroad. And it doesn't feel as if I'm in direct competition with them, you know. Fuchsia, do you read a lot of history, uh, you know, aside from uh, books specifically about cooking or recipes? I mean, do you find that uh, Chinese history and historical accounts of Chinese culinary traditions influence your work and your book? Yeah, definitely. And particularly with his latest book, Land of Fish and Rice, about the, the Jiangnan region, Lower Yangtze region, because this is one of the most sort of culturally and historically rich culinary regions of China. So for that, you know, I think you need to know a little bit about Song Dynasty history and the way the court was driven by barbarians south to Hangzhou and Hangzhou then became this extraordinarily prosperous and cosmopolitan city which you know Marco Polo wrote about a century later in wonder at the sort of um, lively life and the the, um, the affluence of the local um, diet and lifestyle and so on. But I think, um, you know, I really do like to put the recipes and the food in its cultural context. And so I'm just interested in everything that sheds light on that. So in China, whenever I'm going somewhere new, I try to go to museums and learn about the history and culture and the kind of, um, you know, the, the the cooking vessels and the sort of associations of food um, and, yeah, reading history, um, learning about the plants, the agriculture. You know, I think it just makes it, makes it richer, an account of the food with that kind of background. Uh, so the office mate, Fuchsia, that I mentioned, uh, who insists that he is your biggest fan, uh, says that you related a story in your memoir, Sharks, Fin, and Sichuan Pepper, which I haven't gotten to read yet, but I will, uh, about taking a group of top Chinese chefs to France to dine at one of the finest restaurants in Paris. 
Is is that from that book? Is that oh right? well, actually, no, it's not from the memoir. But I wrote a piece for Gourmet magazine, ah, that's and it was, was like. actually about the experience of um, I was invited by the Culinary Institute of America in California to take three Chinese chefs, and I went with three top Sichuan chefs. I mean, really exceptionally talented chefs from Chengdu, and、um, none of them had been to the West before. They hadn't really eaten any Western food, and so I was. Full of delight at、um, feeding them their first cheese, their first <laughs> olives, all these things they'd never tasted before, and they'd been feeding me incredible d- food for, you know, for years. So I was really excited to sort of be able to give them something back. And、um, while we were there. I managed to get us a table at the French Laundry, Thomas Keller's legendary restaurant in in the Napa Valley, and.、Um, So we went for dinner, and it was the most extraordinary experience because these very, very accomplished eaters and chefs were really culture shocked by it. And、um, there were all these, you know, to my surprise, really, because I think that still at some level. Maybe I'd thought that Chinese food was more weird for outsiders, and Western food would be easier for someone Chinese to take. But what happened was, I mean, firstly the circumstances of the meal. So the reservation was at nine thirty in the evening. You know, Chinese people like to eat about six or six thirty. Precisely、so、at six, right? Bit, <laughs> yeah, grumpy and hungry by nine thirty. Then instead of eating swiftly as you tend to do in China, we then had a four-hour tasting menu, and each dish was an exquisite assembly of, you know, various different ingredients and preparations, you know, arranged like a picture on a plate, and they were all things that were unfamiliar to them, and specifically, you know, there was some lamb that was a bit pink and rare in the middle. You know, in China, only barbarians eat raw meat, <laughs> and、um, so they were a bit horrified and disturbed by this. And you know, I don't think one of them just didn't eat it at all. And、um, then they said that olives tasted horribly bitter, like Chinese medicine. And、um, they weren't interested in the creamy dairy foods, which, of course, people in Sichuan at that time really didn't eat at all. What year was this?、Roughly? This was when was it? It must have been. Two thousand and four, or something. Ah, okay. Two thousand and four. Things have changed a bit, but yeah. yeah. And、um, and also, just I mean, one of the most interesting comments was、um, one of the chefs was Yu Bo, who's now a very famous、um, Sichuanese chef who has some international acclaim. And at that time, so that was his first trip abroad, and he said to me, Fuchsia, you know, this is all terribly interesting, but I really couldn't say whether it's good or bad. I thought that was really interesting that they didn't have the context to understand it. So it was just sort of very <laughs> fascinating for me because I'd often seen Westerners being culture shocked by Chinese food, and that was the first time that I'd really seen how you know people with very sophisticated palates could be completely <laughs> sort of、um, shocked and、um, sort of bewildered by their first taste of Western food. Exactly. <laughs> It's a comp- it's a completely different grammar, isn't it? I mean,、uh, the the sort of grammar of the cuisine is completely different. That things appear where they shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it wasn't. You know, it was just the sort of they didn't really know how to place、yeah. it. 
Um, and, and also, of course, the other thing was, you know, we, it finished, like most American meals, with sweet dishes. And because we were in a very fabulous restaurant, we had a whole sequence of sweet dishes. And in China, of course, you finish with a light broth or some fruit or something very refreshing that takes you to a very sort of gentle place. And here we had all this heavy sweet stuff, which they felt, you know, very, very strange Oppressive. way yeah, <laughs> to end a meal. <laughs> So let's go back to China, uh, to Sichuan, you know, where you first learned to cook in China and, and your first two books are about Sichuan food. Um, so what is the, what, what would you say are the characteristics of, of Sichuan cuisine? I mean, I think the mala, the numbing and spicy flavor is, is the famous one, but there's a lot more, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think from a Sichuanese point of view, the, the best way to sum it up would be each dish has its own style and a hundred dishes have a hundred different flavors because the thing about Sichuanese cooking from an insider's point of view is it's stunning variety of tastes so a Sichuanese meal is like a roller coaster ride and um, yes you have your sort of electrifying highs of sizzling chilies and Sichuan pepper but you also mm. have gentle soups maybe a bit of sweet and sour a whole range of flavors so the stereotype of Sichuanese cooking that it's all about ma la numbing and hot aggressive spicing is very misleading because you know a good Sichuanese meal is a like, like a meal in any part of China is a balance of different tastes. It's just that the kind of register of Sichuanese cooking is very dramatic with these sort of very sort of strident spicy notes contrasting with the, with the gentler tastes. The reputation of Sichuan food, though, within China hasn't always been so good. Uh, it's still in many quarters regarded as very coarse fare compared to what you've just written about to, to the, the Jiangnan food. Or even, to, of course, Cantonese food, which still sort of reigns supreme in the, the pantheon of, of cuisines in China. So is that reputation starting to change now? I mean, I would I would dare say that in Beijing, the unofficial official cuisine has become Sichuan food. <laughs> it, it seems to be immensely popular. Yeah, I mean, I think Sichuanese food is very popular, but it's always been seen you know, as the sort of common people's cuisine. So in Beijing, you have the very grand stately official cooking. And then in the east, the Jiangnan region, the sort of very elegant um, cuisine of the literati and Sichuan was sort of, you know, rustic peasant cooking. And it's sort of, it, it's both true and untrue. I mean, I think one of the fantastic things about Sichuanese cooking is, you know, as I've said before, that it makes the ordinary extraordinary. You know, you take something like eggplant, a humble vegetable, and you dress it with yuxiang, fish fragrant seasonings, pickled chilies, ginger, scallion, and garlic, and a bit of sweet and sour, and you've got an absolutely spectacular dish. So I don't think it should be seen in a pejorative light at all, the fact that it's not about sort of highly expensive sea cucumbers and, um, you know, very, um, very extravagant ingredients. But I suppose also, you know, in Sichuan, there are different levels. So mm. at the highest levels of Sichuanese cuisine, you get this sort of more refined version which was eaten by the officials of the past where you get rather gentler flavors and more influence from you know the Jiangnan region from Huayang cooking uh, and so on and then you get the hearty folk cooking which tends to be hotter and more dramatic but I think yeah I mean I, I suppose that because 
in, in China, food is so much about culture and there is this long and serious tradition of gastronomy. So when it comes to sort of writing about food, discussing food and being very intellectual about it, then the cuisine of Jiangnan is kind of really up there. But Sichuanese cooking, in terms of you know variety and gorgeous tastes, is is absolutely outstanding as a cuisine. Fuchsia, for your next book, you wrote on another province. You wrote on revolutionary Chinese cuisine. That's the cuisine of Mao Zedong's home province of Hunan. Uh, why choose that next? I mean, aside from your obvious love of capsicum. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one reason was that um, you know I. I'd heard about Hunanese cuisine as being very spicy and exciting, and I didn't know anything about it. Mm. And there didn't seem to be anything much published about it in the West. And that was like a red rag to a bull. And I thought, let's go and investigate this. That was one reason. Um, But also because for years I'd been hearing all these very fascinating stories about how Chinese foodways had been affected by the cataclysmic events, political and revolutionary events of the 20th century. And so I thought it would be interesting to try and weave some stories about food and revolutionary history in with the recipes. And Hunan seemed like the place to do it, um, partly because it was Mao's home province. And so that was really the motivation. So speaking of that, I mean, maybe you could tell one of the stories. I mean, I'm thinking of, I think it's in the book, but it may have been an an interview with you somewhere. Uh, The founders of a restaurant in the lakeside city of Yoyang who were persecuted as capitalists. What's their story? Uh, Well, I don't know the detail about it, but it's a very common story. I mean, in the Cultural Revolution, there was a sort of um, full-on assault on bourgeois culture, on capitalists. And so um, restaurants, which had been private restaurants, serving very refined cuisine to the sort of um, wealthier people, were suddenly expected to um, turn around and serve cheap and cheerful food for the masses. They often had their sort of um, fancy intellectual um, traditional names changed to things like um, the East is Red Mm. or the future will be better than the past, revolutionary names. So that was just one of the ways in which the Cultural Revolution affected, um, you know, Chinese food culture. Fuchsia, your next book, Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper, a sweet and sour memoir of eating in China, as you describe it, was a memoir rather than a cookbook. How different was that for you to write? Did you feel as though you could use the same voice, some of the same tools that you used for your, your recipe book? I think it was a different approach because I think one thing about cookery books is that the purpose is to get people to cook. And um, you want to um, whet their appetites. And if you're introducing them to a foreign cuisine, you know, in my case, you want to make people fall in love with a place and its culture and its food. So what you're doing is you're sort of offering up a rather romanticized picture of a place, you know, just bringing out the best in a food culture, showing its delicious recipes, talking about its rich traditions and so on, um, to make people want to cook the recipes. And I think it's just that, 
you know, my time in China was more complex and more interesting than that. And there were stories that I really wanted to tell that I couldn't really tell in a cookery book. So things about some of my own sort of issues, you know, periods of loneliness and cultural struggle in China, and um, also you know issues like pollution and the eating of endangered species and things like that that are all very fascinating, but they don't have their place in a sort of lovely cookery book about a region. So yeah, that was really, and also just you know this. Whole this very unusual experience that I'd had of being at the cooking school and being, you know, the first Westerner and one of so few women that that was something that was quite interesting to write about, but didn't wouldn't really find its place in in a collection of recipes. Okay, so now we come to the section of the podcast titled "Fuchsia Dunlop Save My Life," which is the title of a blues song I'm currently working on lyrics for <laughs> and looking looking for a, a singer here in Nashville to uh, put to music. Um, uh, just before I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, from Beijing, I was talking to Jonathan Landreth, who's the editor at China File, and uh, you know I was whining about. I love Nashville's great, but uh, you know what am I going to do about Chinese food? And he said one word: uh, fuchsia Dunlops, every grain of rice. That's、um, actually six words. Okay, that's that,、uh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> but you get the idea. I got the book as soon as I landed, and you know Nashville is rather wanting in Chinese、uh, food. And thanks to every grain of rice, I felt that our family we could replicate at least some of the tastes we were very used to in Beijing. And I say this as someone who lived in China for twenty years and shamefully only started cooking the last six months of them.、Um, So I I I think this is why、uh, Kaiser's office mate is also such a fan. Is、uh, that that book in particular? But I mean all of your books. But that book really does it. If you if you need to taste China and you have to make it yourself, that book tells you how. And it's really you know the only source like that I can find. So all right, I'm done with、uh, praising you、uh, to the high heavens. All the sweet <laughs> sweet talk.、Uh, why did you? <laughs> the question now, the difficult part.、Uh, the question is, why did you decide to focus on simple food, jiaqiang cai? You know, the the book is subtitled "Simple Chinese Home Cooking," and that that it is. All the recipes are super easy to make.、Um, did you just want to? Was it reader demand, publisher desire,、uh, or something in the food? Well, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose what it was was that、um, I've never really understood how it's possible that so many Westerners think of Chinese food as being unhealthy and junky, because no one, no one knows how to cook for health and happiness like the Chinese. You know how to make vegetables taste delicious, how to eat in a way that, in modern parlance, is kind of more environmentally sustainable,、um, more healthy, and at the same time incredibly gastronomically satisfying. So I had this idea of doing a sort of green book、um, with lots of wonderful vegetable dishes, and the final form just sort of found itself. And I just ended up including a lot of recipes that I cooked regularly in my own kitchen, and just found very delicious and very straightforward. So it just it just sort of evolved into that book. <laughs> I don't think I knew what the end product would be when I started. Well, the end product is a great service to humankind. So thank you very much for that.、Uh, let's let's move on and talk about your. Current book, you're currently touring around it. 
And uh, it taste-wise, it's quite a departure from Sichuan and from Hunan. The book is about dishes from the lower Yangtze or the Jiangnan region, the region maybe for people less familiar with Chinese geography, around Shanghai, uh, the land of fish and rice, which is uh, what, of course, gives your book its title. What made you choose this cuisine, this, this particular area? Well, when I was writing Shark's Fin and Citron Pepper, I got to know Yangzhou, which is this city inland from Shanghai, which is an ancient gastronomic capital. You know, it was one of the richest cities in China during the Qing Dynasty and the, the center of the salt trade, which was incredibly important in the Chinese economy. And of course, of fried rice, of course. Well, yes. <laughs> and, um, and Yangzhou just had this, all these very rich salt merchants who hosted wonderful dinner parties and entertained each other to banquets and it became known as the center of gastronomy. Mm. So I got very interested in Yang Zhou and then in 2008 I visited for the first time this incredible restaurant in Hangzhou called the Dragon Well Manor, Longjing Cao Tang. And they were serving this absolutely, I mean it was like a dream fulfilled for me. It was a kind of classical Chinese cooking that I'd read about and heard about and they were using traditional cooking techniques of the region with the finest produce, from sort of what we would call organic farms and artisanal producers. And I wrote a piece for The New Yorker about that restaurant, and that's how I got to know it and the owner. And I just kept going back to Hangzhou and then the, the broader region, you know, Shaoxing, the home of Shaoxing wine. And it's just, it's one of the most rich gastronomic regions in China, and it produces some of the finest ingredients, not just Shaoxing wine, but the famous Jinhua ham, which should be up there with the great Italian and Spanish hams, you know, and they have all this, um, you know, as land of fish and rice, the name would suggest, it's a sort of land of plenty with an extraordinary range of fresh ingredients. So just not just sea fish from the coast and crustaceans, but lots of water creatures like the famous hairy crabs, paddy eels, freshwater shrimps, gorgeous fish, and then all these intriguing water vegetables, not just water chestnuts and lotus root, but also water shield and jiaobai, water bamboo or wild rice stem. And, um, and also, it just has such a fascinating culture mm. of gastronomy because this was a region where, you know, poets through the ages have rhapsodized about the food. Many of the most important historical Chinese cookbooks from the Song Dynasty onwards were written about the food of this region and by people who came from there or lived there. And so you just have this whole culture around food. So dishes with sort of romantic or poetic names or with legends attached to them stories about emperors, corrupt officials, impoverished scholars, desperate servants. You know, it's just wonderful. And it's also just, it's such feel-good food. You know, people in China, people trying to talk about, you know, it's about the flavors are very gentle. They're qingdan, pure and light. Often translated that word into English as bland or insipid, which just does it such a disservice because it's not boring. It's just soothing and comforting and um, sort of healthy and balanced. And not just, I mean, it's not just all lightly flavored dishes because this is the headquarters of luscious red braised dishes, you know, red braised pork with soy sauce and rice wine and sugar. Don't pour yeah. yeah, with these Great gorgeous stuff. gravies and drunken dishes and stinking tofu and other exciting fermented foods. So it's just sort of, it's just a very, um, 
you know, I could quite happily live on food of this region for the rest of my life. You wouldn't miss the blazing flavors of Sichuan and Hunan? Well, I mean, that Sichuan is my other great love in Chinese gastronomic terms, but I just love them both. I mean, they're totally different. Yeah. I, I think of Sichuanese food as being like the jazz of the Chinese food world and Jiangnan cooking as being classical. You can't really compare them. They, they sort of satisfy different appetites. Dongbei is the hard rock, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe. Sort of maybe the metal. I think, I think it's the metal, actually, okay. Kaiser. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, I, we understand that you do need to get going. So we're going to move on to our recommendation section. But before we do, could you just tell us a little bit about what you're working on next uh, once you get back from book tour? And oh, tell us why on earth you haven't opened a restaurant yet. Oh, well, I do consult for a group of Sichuanese restaurants in London. Oh, but good. I think, honestly, if you're going to open a restaurant, that's a full-time full-time occupation for at least the first couple of years and I really love the writing and researching and I don't want to give that up so I'm working on various different projects concurrently and, and one thing in my mind is that I really want to do another narrative book because of more stories to tell and you know I've kind of changed and China has changed since Sharks, Fin and Citron Pepper so that's something I'm sort of working out in my head at the moment too. Well, marvelous. We, we look forward to it. Uh, and great, Fuchsia, thank you so much. The, the, the new book is called Land of Fish and Rice, Recipes from the Culinary Heart of China. Uh, and we're really grateful to you for making time to talk with us. So I hope you stick around and make a recommendation with us. We'll, we'll be very quick about this. Before we get to recommendations, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. Jeremy, on to recommendations, and why don't you get us started? Okay, I, I'm going to actually recommend something that I, I picked up from Fan Fan, your wife, Kaiser, which is a mobile phone app called uh, Shimalaya. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, or Him Himalayas. It uh, it's basically allows you to uh, stream and listen to a bunch of Chinese audio uh, podcasts, uh, audio dramas, well. yeah. narratives, audio books, all kinds of audio content, also some music and stuff. Um, and it's if especially if you're living outside of China, it's a great way to you know listen to a lot of Chinese, which is important for me, so that I remain able to understand it properly. Yeah, excellent. I, I'm, she'll be really ha happy to hear because I think she was a little resentful when you kind of dismissed her suggestion that we try to get the, the podcast onto Simalaya. <laughs> but uh, you're forgiving yeah, now. Yeah, well, that's that's, that's a slightly different, different, right, conversation, it's a different conversation, but it's a it's a great. It's a great device. I've, I'm having a lot of fun listening to interesting stuff in Chinese. Okay, great. Uh, Fuchsia, what do you have for us? What's your recommendation? Well, I was going to recommend that everyone go out and get a Chinese cleaver, um, a cai dao, literally a vegetable knife. So not the fiercer meat chopper of Western paranoid imagination, <laughs> but the, the lighter, more delicate knife that is the Chinese kitchen knife um, used for slicing vegetables, for even slicing a tiny clove of garlic. And it's just, um, you know, once you've got the hang of using a Chinese cleaver, Chinese cutting knife, then you won't want to use anything else because apart from being so versatile for cutting, um, you can also scoop up the food off your chopping board and chuck it into your wok. You can smack a piece of ginger to loosen it up to release its flavors and you can do all kinds of wonderful things with a cleaver. So there you are. Um, amazingly versatile. Quickly, do you, do you like straight edges or slightly curved edges? 
Oh, I tend to use a straight edge cleaver. Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm a, a curved edge partisan because I like that rocking back and forth as I finally minced ginger or scallion. I like that. That's, <laughs> yes. a, that's a good move. Oof. I mean, it saves some wrist action. Anyway, I have a cooking-related suggestion as well, or a recommendation as well. Mine is a no-need, like K-N-E-A-D, no-need dough technique for, you know, your jiaozi skins or your spring onion pancakes or your noodles or just about any other unleavened Chinese wheat flour product. Uh, I call it the gravity method. So it's, it's a really good way to coax the two proteins that comprise gluten to actually form the requisite bonds uh, without all the physical exertion of actually kneading. So it's uh, just warm water and flour in a bowl with plastic wrap. Give it 30 minutes. And then you just sort of suspend it from one corner at a time and allow it to, to stretch to its full length and then fold you know, from each side. So you end up with sort of a roughly squarish thing and then fold in from the corners uh, and repeat. Give it another 30 minutes to rest. Uh, so it takes a while. It's, it's about a two-hour process. But in the meantime, you can make your, you know, jiaozixiar or whatever else you need to do. And it's it's marvelous. Um, you, you'll never lose your xiar in the uh, tongue again. It's very stretchy and, and, and resilient to breaking. That recipe, courtesy of my wife, who doesn't like to knead dough. I'll have to try it myself. Two fan-fan <laughs> recommendations today. Uh, once again, Fuchsia, <laughs> thanks so much for chatting with us today. And Jeremy, a pleasure as always. I will see you soon, I trust. Yes? Yes, Okay, indeed. very good. Thanks. Thanks, Fuchsia. <laughs> Thank you, Fuchsia. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks this week to Eric Fish of the Asia Society, whose podcast, the Asia Society Podcast, you should most definitely check out. Eric helped us to record Fuchsia today from New York. Special thanks this week also to Anla Chang and to Soraya Darabi from SupChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.